There's a reason that we're drawn to data, I think, which is that we want to make the right choices. That particularly in, you know, in parenting, we really want to be right. And we sort of, we feel like data is like a concrete thing to like hang on to. David Yoakum here. What does running a family and running a business have in common? A lot more than you might think, or at least it should. Today, we're joined by Emily Oster, an economics professor at Brown University and best-selling author of three books about pregnancy and parenting, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and most recently, and the subject of this episode, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. I talk with Emily about the four Fs to parental decision-making. It turns out Effit is not one of them. And in general, how thinking like a business firm can help improve and even simplify how you manage your family. We apply it to examples like COVID masking, TV and social media, redshirting. We explore limitations and connections to public policy. I try to shame the research community into conducting more randomized experiments. We even talk about witches. Let the record show from when my boys complained to HR that it was Emily who seeded the idea in my mind of a parental syllabus. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Welcome, everyone. We have started the Zoom recording, but for some reason, it takes a couple of minutes for everybody to literally log in through the internet tube. So I've been instructed to wait about 20 seconds before we get going. So Emily, you and I can just stare Jack. at each other awkwardly. Stare for a, for a awkwardly. Of it's my favorite. Yes. I love a good awkward stare. <laughs> Emily, it's great to see you. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about the book. But I actually want to start by asking you a question about witches. Okay. Which I didn't really know. <laughs> I didn't really notice about you, but looking back at your your CV, I noticed that one of your first yeah. papers you shipped, I think you were still in grad school, was about witchcraft and the relation of how weather affects economic conditions, affects witchcraft. If you're able to like dust off sure. the memory banks of your brain, I'm curious the gist of that and how, if at all, it makes you think about sort of political polarization and things today. Um, so I so I wrote that paper, um, just to be to be clear, I wrote that paper um, as actually in an undergraduate class uh, about witches. Um, so Harvard has a folklore and mythology department and I took this class in my senior my senior year about witches. Um, this is like a history of witches, I don't really remember, but there was a paper requirement, I wrote this paper and this sort of Analysis in the paper looks at um, sort of across locations over like by decade. I put together a bunch of secondary data on like number of, of witch trials um, and weather. And so the idea in the paper is to is to sort of make an argument, make a quantitative version of an argument that I think people had sort of qualitatively suggested, which was that uh, one of the reasons that sometimes you had witch trials were that, you know, there was a crop failure and people wanted someone to blame and there's like reasons for, for that. And so, um, so I kind of ran these regressions where I showed that like when the, when the weather was worse, when it was colder, there were more witch trials. This sort of overlaps in time period with a, a period called the Little Ice Age when Europe was somewhat colder. Um, first, it was like a sort of period of cold snaps. So, um, so that was kind of the argument in the in the paper. And I think the idea is that there's a sort of, I'm not sure I connected to political polarization as much as just some kind of like scapegoating um, with the idea that, you know, when things go wrong and you don't really understand them, you kind of want to, you want to have someone to, uh, to blame. And, and then there was, uh, there were the, the witches to do that with. There you go. Very nice. I'm impressed you remember the details there. Absolutely. No, that is, I mean, that is the kind of connection I had in mind though, in a moment of a lot of uncertainty and economic pain and things like that, a kind of slippage into 
you know, blame, blaming other folks or getting mad at other folks is, to my mind, a lot of what drives political polarization, actually. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think in that case, there's also a sort of, and people have sort of kind of made this connection to some of this kind of scapegoating in um, in a more modern period. But there was also a thing where, like, if you kill somebody, then you have to feed them. So in a sort of time of, like, of like crop shortages, there's actually practical reasons, which, of course, is separate from what we have now. But, um, but yeah, I do think there's, like, when you don't understand things or you're frustrated or there's a lot of uncertainty, there is a sort of, like, who's, who's to, the scapegoating, like, who's trying to find someone to blame. Well, so now we've covered witches, we can turn to the, the sorcery that is parenting. And yes. of course, some of the, the best students in the room will have already read the book, even though it's been out for a couple of weeks. But let's assume that some of our listeners haven't had a chance to do that yet and give them a, you know, a quick, a quick cliff notes. Although mostly I want to ask some questions about things kind of around the book or beyond the book. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if I might prime you to, you know, maybe, maybe open with just a little bit on what the analogy of a family firm means, why you kind of pick that imagery. Sure. Yeah. So, so when I sort of, the, my last, so the book, so the book I wrote before this is about, it's called Crib Sheet. It's about kind of parenting in the sort of infancy to three to age three uh, realm. And when I thought about kind of extending the, the timescale to this older kid parenting space, um, there, there, I kind of realized that the, that the, way that I was using data and the kinds of things that I was sort of doing, the kinds of ways I was using my job in this, um, in this era of parenting were a bit different, it, you know, in, in for kind of two reasons. One, it's actually much less frequently the case that any particular piece of data is very well matched to the question that you're asking, or is exactly the answer, right? So I think the analogy I have is like, when you're uh, when you have a baby, people often ask, like, is swaddling a good idea? Is swaddling going to make my kids sleep better? That's like a very specific, concrete question. It has an answer. The answer is yes. It's not exactly as effective for all babies, but it's basically like pretty consistently effective across a wide range of baby types. When you turn into a question like, what's the right school for my kid? You know, that is a question that is just totally different for different families. The choice sets you're going to have are different. The opportunities you're going to have are different. That Your kids are different. What's going to work for your kids are different. Like all of these pieces are, uh, are kind of different. So there's no, even if you had sort of very good data, which we don't always, even if you had very good data, it's not clear that the same data would be kind of relevant for everybody. So the, the data becomes kind of a piece of, of this book. And there's a bunch of data in the book, which I hope we can talk about a bit. But the whole first part here is really a, a sort of taking a step back and saying, you know, you're about to enter or you have entered an era of parenting, a time period of parenting in which there are going to be a ton of logistics and there are going to be a ton of unexpected decisions. And what you're going to need is a way to kind of manage those logistics, to craft a life that you want, to craft a sort of structure of life that you want. And you're going to need a way to make those decisions that means that you're making them well uh, and not, you know, making them haphazardly. So there's a sort of whole first part of the book, which is centered around the idea that you can take some tools into doing those things, for doing those things, for making that work. You can take some tools from firms. And I sort of talk through some approaches to that. And then I talk some about the data. I will say sort of one piece, which is when you tell people uh, this book is about how to run your family like a firm. Their the first thing is like, oh, okay, like this is about using spreadsheets to like optimize your kid and treat your kid like they're a profit, like you're profit maximizing your kid. And like, that's the analogy, right? And I think in some ways, the book is almost, the, it's almost the opposite of that. It's the, the piece I'm trying to pull from firms is the idea that your decision making should be intentional or deliberate and that the choices we make are important enough that they deserve thought. 
and that we should structure our kind of thinking about our families uh, in an intentional way. And I think, in fact, for many families, the result of that may actually be doing less and not more. So in some sense, it's not, you know, use spreadsheets to to schedule more soccer practice. It's like use intentionality to decide like soccer's not for you. And actually you just like want to like hang out and go, you know, hang out as a family on the weekends and not do that stuff. So I think it's really the like intentionality of decision-making the thought about sort of how our choices fit into some bigger picture. That's the piece that I think I'm sort of drawing from the firm, not the like, I mean, there are some other tools from the firm, but like not the, not the idea that this is some kind of like profit motive. Right, right. And the need for that kind of a decision structure or approach does seem more necessary when you go into domains that just have a lot less clear evidence. And that is one of the things that's kind of notably different about this book than expecting better in crib sheet is that you, of course, tackle a number of specific issues like when to start kindergarten, how to deal with sleep and things like that. But the conclusions are often a little bit more, ah, we're not exactly sure, consider these things. I'm curious to what extent you sort of expected that when you started to, to look into this? Or were you surprised by the relative kind of lack of, of data that there was on many of these? Issues? Yeah. So it's interesting. So I, I think I expected pieces of it and not others. So I think the piece that I, I that I expected and um, that I sort of knew would be true is that in some of these, that there's just a lot, it's like the causality is really hard. That when we look at a question like how important is family dinner and kids outcomes, that you would run up against the fact that the, you know, the families who choose to eat dinner together have the opportunity to eat dinner together every night. That's just like a really different, that's really different. That's like, a there's a lot of differences. And I, I sort of knew that those in those spaces, it would be hard to get to kind of get the right the right data there are other spaces in the book and you know school choice is kind of is kind of one of them were actually in a kind of academic sense um the 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 data is not bad like we have like like if you asked about sort of data about like charter schools versus like actually we know a lot about that landscape like we have a like we have a lot of good pretty causal evidence on that stuff but I think the thing I realized and hadn't sort of put together before I started working on the book is even in those spaces, it is not always clear that the data is is directly helpful to individual families' choices because the pieces of evidence you want are so are so the choices you have are so different and the treatment effects are likely to be so heterogeneous across kids so there isn't one answer to like what is the right school for people it sort of like varies with your kid and so I think some of the the work in the book and I don't know how successful this always is is to say okay you know here's how we know here's you know we know sleep is important and here's kind of the roughly right amount but actually doesn't really tell you the answer but like here's how you would sort of know if you were giving your kid the right amount so I think there's a little bit of of work to say like the data says there's heterogeneity here's how you might think about where your family or your kid fits in that heterogeneity but um but there are there are limitations for sure well why don't we linger for a second with the school choice question just to pick an example to kind of illustrate a little bit concretely the framework that you're talking about what what is the sort of state of evidence on school choice and maybe walk us through your approach of how parents think about that decision so um Okay, so I sort of have in a big decision like that, I have the idea that people should take some structured approach. And I have this particular approach involving what I call the four F's. Um, and, uh, and so the first of those is to say, you know, when you face a choice like this, that you want to start by framing the question, you want to start by thinking concretely about what the 
choices are, what the actual alternatives are. So sometimes people ask a question, we'll sort of think about the question like, is this, you know, should I, should my kid go to this, to this school or not? And, and that's not a very helpful way to think about the question because or not is not a school that I'm aware of, right? And so you, you kind of need to get to a point where you say, this is the actual choice I have. And part of that is saying, you know, what are the two, you know, what are the two or three concrete options? Part of it is thinking like, is there really a choice? You know, sometimes you say, well, actually, like, there isn't really another good, like, there isn't really a choice, like this kind of the choice that I that I have and and you know we're gonna have to do this. So the sort of first step on that is to just say what are the what are the two choices? So then there's a second, there's a second step uh, called fact finding, in which I suggest that people collect some data on like like and I think data, I sort of data is like a few different pieces. So one piece of the data on schools would be something like what is like you know, how good are these schools? They spend a bunch of time in the book talking about, you know, how do we First, what do we know about school types? So like, what do we know about private schools versus public schools? Or what do we know about charters versus public schools? And I think there, when you sort of dig into that, a lot of the answer depends on the quality, like the, the quality of the alternative. So if you look at something like charter schools, on average, you know, kids perform better on tests um, as a result of, of lotterying into charter schools. Um, so there's like some good evidence on that, but it depends a lot on the quality of the of the sort of of the uh, the alternative, right? So there's a little bit of a piece in there when you try to dig even more into like, okay, well, what makes a good school? Like, what are the characteristics of a good school? Um, you you know, you get there are a few things that kind of pull out pretty readily. Um, things like class size, um, teacher feedback. So there's a, a sort of a few kind of things that you could you could point to at at schools. Um, but then there's a lot of that kind of fact finding in any space, but particularly in schools, which is about things that have that are sort of not not covered in that kind of data characteristics of the schools um, that are that like aren't about test scores. Right. So almost all of our data is like, how do we optimize test scores? Well, maybe that's not the main thing you care about. Maybe you care about the diversity of the school. Maybe you care about the sort of other opportunities. Maybe you care about uh yeah, I don't know, maybe you just care about the type of school, like whatever it is, like there's sort of a set of other things. And on top of that, there's a whole piece of logistics. So in this kind of fact-finding step, as people think about this, there's a, a sense in which I want them to, to also think about how would my life work? If I have these two schools and one of them is an hour away, like how are we going to make that operate? Like, let's not just like assume that will work out. Let's actually think about, you know, how is that going to impact other parts of our, of our life? Third step, once you've got all that information, um, is to make a final decision. And I think that particularly when choices are hard or uncertain, we tend to be very reluctant to pull the trigger. So we tend to be very reluctant to say, like, I'm going to make this decision. And instead, we just sort of like make it every day, like in a weird, like sort of every day, we kind of like make it and then we get some information, we make it again. We Like, that's not a very good decision frame. It kind of means it's taking up all of the space in your head forever. So this is, this is a way to say, do the work, make the decision, try to move on. And then the fourth F is, uh, is follow up. And, and that's just trying to note that in a lot of, um, in a lot of our decisions, uh, we think of them as permanent, like I'm going to choose this school and I'll never reevaluate. And I think that's a mistake. I think in almost all of the choices that we make, 
there is an opportunity to reevaluate and that we should plan for that opportunity. We should say at the end of the school year, we're just going to at least have a short conversation to ask, do we want to do the same thing again? Or at the end of the, you know, this soccer season, we're going to say, should we do it again? Um, and, uh, and that we're not just going to assume that because we did something like the sort of, we're going to, we're going to fight a little bit the hysteresis of, uh, of kind of doing the same thing every time. So that's it. Those are my four steps. Yeah. And that's something I appreciated about the book in this chapter was a kind of clarification that the kind of big frame between like public versus private versus charter is just really not a helpful way to even frame the question. And you show some graphs around how, some charters are better than some public, some public seem better than charter and vice versa, but land with some kind of criteria about schools that as a parent, you might try to assess in the particular school set that's in front of you, which is, you know, a fair amount of nuance and as you noted, yeah. effort, but for a big yeah. decision like that, it seems worth it. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we're sort of like, well, like, I'm, I'm going to think about this, like, are private schools better? That question is not, not helpful. Uh, for you. It is not, it's not well-defined. It's like, that's not really a question that as an individual parent, we would be particularly able to answer or would be helpful to answer for us. And I think that's kind of, yeah, that's important. So why don't we pick another example? And this one is not in the book, but is under a lot of discussion now. And I know you talked about it some in parent data, the (laughs) newsletter, but with Delta rolling around, there's Delta, a lot of Delta variant. Yeah. Delta variant. There's a lot of there. debate and decisions happening on sort of what to do with kids in school, how to do it safely, whether to wear a mask. Kind of want to tee you up again here to maybe illustrate how the approach can help in this setting. Yeah. Okay, of course. Um, so first, I, you know, I think this is a good example of something that I've been thinking a lot about in in the book, which is, you know, the book is really um, and to a large extent, my newsletter uh, is sort of really focused on like, how do you make the best decision as a parent under the constraints that you face, right? And so as a parent, like, I, I look out at the world and I have some schools that I, that I have an option to choose, or I have some particular opportunities about what could I do with my kid this upcoming year in the face of the, of the Delta variant. And I think sometimes our debates are getting like, there's like a there's like a separate policy debate, which this is sort of getting wrapped up in, right? And I think that that it's and that's making it hard to to make a lot of these choices, right? Because I think there's people, or people I hear from a lot, who are living in places without mask mandates, and the question is, and you know, they're trying to decide whether to send their kid to school, but also they're consumed with anger, and I totally get that. Like they're just so mad that the policy is what it is what it is. And I think that's a, that's a sort of reasonable reaction, but also not one that's helpful in making your own choice. Um, so, so sort of with that, with that frame, I would say, you know, when you approach this as a parent, the first thing people want to do is to say, okay, what are the actual choices that I have? And so I, am I, so, you know, it may be that the, for some people, the choice is going to be, should I send my kid in person or should I enroll in a remote option? For some people, the choice is going to be, should I send my kid in person with you know, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? Should I say, you know, so, so there's, or should I do the remote option? Like there's a finite number of choices. It may be that you have no choice, right? So there are a set of, you know, for like my kid, my kid's school is opening in person. There is not a remote option at their school. My choice is, it's not that I don't have a choice. But the choice is send them in person wearing a mask to school or homeschooled, like, or some option, which is like, which basically for me is like completely out of the question. Like I, even if I wanted it, even if I was anxious about sending them to school, which I'm not, I would be, uh, I would, I would not have another choice. So 
And the first step there is to kind of think about the think about the options. And then the second set is really to sort of think about the risks. And this is where I this is where I think I've been writing a lot about trying to help people sort of think of try to think about the size of these risks. And so, you know, we people say a lot of things like kids are low risk, kids are low risk of COVID, those go. Okay. Um, but that's that is hard to for people to understand. Um, and so I've tried to sort of put some numbers on that and talk about like what do we mean by that? You know, the hospitalization risks are probably in the same kind of, you know, conditional infection, the hospitalization risks are kind of in the same space as something like the flu, but a bit lower than something like RSV, at least for younger kids. Um, you know, the the risks of 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 death are quite a bit lower, probably even than the than the flu. You know, it's not it's not common, very, very, very rare for healthy kids. Um, and you know, the, the risk of getting sick at all is probably more like, like, you know, 50%. So I kind of have some summary of like, look, if your kid gets COVID, it's like a 50% chance you probably won't know. And then, you know, there's a, among the rest of the 50%, almost, you know, it's like a 98% chance or that, that they will basically just have like pretty mild symptoms, like a sort of typical, and then there are some sort of more tail, tail events. So I'm kind of trying to like put that out for people. But then I think what's hard is like, okay, but what do I do with that? Like, you know, I like how, like you, okay, so it's low risk, but it's not zero risk. You know, it's not like you're saying like that this, like that this is something I would like, like welcome. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not. And I think that's, that's what's hard for people. And so I'm sort of trying, I spent much of the last year trying to put together different ways to talk, to sort of help people talk about, think about these final probabilities. And I think the latest one I came to is to say, okay, look, imagine there was no chance your kid would get COVID. Now think about what you would do, right? Like, would you, and I think for some people, actually, it's like, you know, I would take the remote option, even if I thought there was no chance, because I can't handle the idea of this disruption. Like, I just want to know what I'm planning for. I don't think that's a lot of people, but it's not nobody. Or some people's kids love remote school. It's like a different thing. And then I think there's, there's the other side, which is almost think about like, what if there was a very high chance, like, what if it was like 50%? Like, what if you were sure your kid would get COVID? And I think like, that's a hard thing to think about. But like, what if you knew that would happen? Would you send your kid to school? And I think some people are like, you know what? I would do it because like, I see that the risks are low. I see these are the kind of risks I'm taking all the time. And like, even if I knew this would happen, like I would send them because I know school is really important. I think for many other people, they'd be like, definitely not. If I knew that they were going to get COVID. I would figure out something else to do. And so then you sort of dial it down from there. Like, what if there was a 20% chance? Like, because that's a number you can think about. And then when you get into like, well, how risky is actually in person school? The answer is it's not very risky at all. Like basically there's not much transmission at all in school. They're at much higher risk from household transmission or other, you know, transmission kind of outside the school. So the school itself is not risky, but I think part of what's made it hard for people is that we're kind of saying all these probabilities are small and you're supposed to like multiply them all together. And like, I can't think about small probabilities. And so there's a way to frame this to say, think about a probability. You're a little more comfortable, like 20% the probability we kind of get. Um, like we can kind of conceptualize what that, what that means once every week, something, you know, like, and so I think that, that some of that is, is kind of trying to just pull on places where we can think about the numbers a little bit more clearly. Right. I'm curious to try this analogy on you and see if, if you might want to rename your book a bit, which is okay. I was reading it and thinking of the similarities with, with government actually. And of course, huh? I do a lot of work with government, so I'm biased here. But, you know, unlike a firm, which, you know, to simplify a bit, but relative to government has sort of a product they're selling, they're monitoring the overall net revenue that they're getting. There's a clear kind of feedback loop. With government, there are 
many different competing priorities. You're trying to deliver transportation and health and public safety at the same time, highly limited data, tremendous amount of uncertainty about what works, a lot of different stakeholders who have fundamentally different values at stake. And in some cases, in that instance, a well-functioning government is one that has kind of systems for getting people to make decisions that at least enough folks can kind of feel good about and get along about, as opposed to necessarily optimizing end-of-day income, because it's kind of impossible to do that. I'm curious, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you find that compelling or what you make of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there there's like, in some sense, like the book is a pitch to like use to use like deliberate tools from the business world, which is not really all from business, right? So it's not partly because it's not really about the, like the, the analogy is not about optimize or profit maximize. It's about deliberateness or intentionality. I think it really is almost like the family, like workplace and whereas workplace could be, you know, government or, or whatever. Um, uh, so I think that's kind of the, I think that's a little, I see the analogy, but I'm not sure that the, that the analogy here is so focused on the firm. And I also think that firms tend to be like better organized, like a little, like they tend to, like, they like row in a little bit more the same direction. And maybe I'm saying that because I spent the last year interacting with government. Well, but, but, uh, but part of what I'm suggesting is that the reason firms can sometimes actually row a little bit clearer is that they have an easier kind of river that they're rowing down. You know, they're trying to sell sneakers or something like that. Whereas in a government Yeah, but setting, the, yeah, that's a sort of, I think that's like a simplistic view. I mean, Amazon is not a firm that like just, try, you know, this is not like, yes, maybe if your firm is like, is like a tiny, you know, is like just trying to do one thing, but Amazon is trying to like run a cloud server and like ship and like train the entire American economy and run a billion warehouses. And like, there's like, a, you know, large firms are doing a million different things. They have a bunch of things that they're trying to do. They're not just trying to, to sort of optimize around one product. And they're not always just trying to optimize around one particular, like, you know, business area or even one particular outcome, I think. Mm-hmm. So let's pick another example. You've got a chapter talking about TV and, and social media use, which maybe that's two different examples. What's your kind of read on the state of the, the evidence here in terms of what parents should be doing? So I think, you know, in the case of, of I, I sort of separate the book a little bit into kind of like the social media side and the kind of, and the passive media side. So like TV, video games. Um, and, and again, I'm sort of trying to give people like a way to think a little bit about this and, and separate. I think we tend to think of TV as kind of like one thing, which is like, it's a, it's a thing that you do and you sit and you watch and whatever. Um, and so part of what I'm, I sort of pitch here is like, you, TV is actually two things. TV is not doing something else and it is content. And so there's a sort of content piece and a like time piece. And so most of what we know, most of what we sort of think about almost as the, as the downsides of TV are actually about the time piece, right? So the, the evidence around sort of people, um, the kind of evidence around like content and like do, what if kids watch violent TV today, like that stuff is all, that evidence is all very poor. Um, you know, there isn't, there isn't any particularly good evidence suggesting that if kids watch violence on TV, they like, they become more violent. Like the content is really, I think, not the central thing. The central thing is like, if they're watching TV, they're not doing something else. And so that means, you know, they're not exercising, they're not learning to read, they're not like, you know, having a deep philosophy conversation. They're just like watching TV. And so I think sometimes people are like, oh, okay, well, that means they shouldn't watch TV. 
But I think the, the right way to frame this is say, like, say if your kid, say your kid told you that for an hour before dinner, 45 minutes or whatever, before dinner every night, they just wanted to sit in their room and they wanted you to stare at the wall. They just wanted to like sit there quietly and stare at the wall. You would be like, that's amazing. Like my kid is such a great meditator and I didn't even have to teach them. They just like, they love meditating and staring at the wall. And like, and, and of course you would also be like, oh, thank God, because I can, now I can like make dinner and not have people like totally, you know, freak out on this. Right. So, and now they'd be like yelling, yelling at me. So in some ways, I think that it's not like you would never have them stare at the wall. You wouldn't have them stare at the wall for six hours a day because then they wouldn't be doing their homework or any, or any of the other things they need to do. So there's like a balance there, but the balance isn't to say you should never have screens. The balance is to say you should think about what is the alternative. And I think particularly during the pandemic, a lot of us use screens a lot more. I think part of the part of the sort of frame of that was like the alternative is I'm yelling at you. Like the alternative is like a like not a great situation. And in that situation, watching TV was better than me. Uh, than me yelling at you. And, you know, it's true that like, it's not exactly meditation, but I'm not sure that like watching, you know, miraculous ladybug animated adventures is really that different from meditation. (laughs) Of course, of course. A lot of similarities. Very similar. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I'm in reading that and if somebody has got a a three and a five-year-old, two boys kind of appreciated the perspective that as you kind of put it, you know, sometimes you need a break, sometimes kids need a break, and that's preferable to sort of duking it out. The part where I caught myself not wanting to let myself off the hook too quick there was sort of the thought that if I sort of was refusing TV, and now they're getting old enough to where sometimes they're like asking for it, right? Where's the iPad and that kind of stuff. And really the calculus I kind of have in my mind is, you know, if I could just duke it out with them for like 10 minutes and really hold firm, then they will start to go play with blocks or do something else but very tempting to want to just oh I'm exhausted as you said and kind of give in at that moment and so it's like a little yeah but I think that's I think that's an argument in in like I think it's argument for deliberateness and to say basically okay but how like let me think in advance in the moment you can't make a good decision about that like it's easy to be like hey I just take the iPad fine um but you know there's a there's a moment in when you're not tired to be like how much of this we want to be doing like what, like, is there a limit, you know, is there a limit we want to put, is there a time we want to put on it? Like what, you know, how do we want to think about that? And I think that that external, like that externalizes both for you and for them, right? Sort of think about when you teach and the syllabus, think about like one of the greatest teaching tricks is to put stuff on the syllabus. And then when people ask for things to say, you can't do it because it's on the syllabus. Like, can I have an extension? I'm so sorry. I wish I could help you. But on the syllabus, it says you can't have extensions. I wrote the effing syllabus. Like, you know, that's like, they're just like, I can do whatever I want. I make this shit up every day. But I think that, you know, for your kids, it's the same kind of thing. Be like, I'm sorry. I do wish you could watch TV right now, but actually TV time is at this other time. It's not now. And I like, I, I trust me, I'd like you to watch TV too, but unfortunately the rules say that TV time is is later. And I think there is actually, I think that kids are pretty, I I think in general, kids are pretty responsive to that because they understand the idea of rules and, you know, it takes a little while for them to put together that you make the rules. Yeah. It is a magical, it's a magical, it's a magical thing. Well, Well, so thinking about where, evidence is really limited or mixed. I'm, I'm curious how you kind of weigh up the, the evidence side when it's kind of limited like that against just the whole body of places where there's, you know, traditions, family habits, you know, stories passed down from grandparents and things like that. 
how do you how do you how do you kind of balance those two? You know, is it like one study that's well done could could knock you off of a, a family habit type of thing, or do you have a different kind of approach? I don't. So you know, I tend to. I you know I think I think in this there's a reason that we're drawn to data I think which is that we want it we want to make the right choices that particularly in you know in parenting we really want to be right and we sort of we feel like data is like a concrete thing to like hang on to right like is like even if it's just one study it's like so concrete um, and I think I suffer from that like a lot of people it's sort of like okay like well there's like one study that should like sort of trump trump everything and I think there's a moment of stepping back and being like look you know there's sort of study there's this one study but also there's just general logic or there's you know other aspects of, of kind of preferences and I think that there's a um a a space for taking taking all of that into into account and also for accepting that some of these choices we're going to make are going to be made because we like them because they're what we want um and that it actually it is it should be fine to say that to say you know the reason that i have my kid doing you know, competitive hockey six nights a week is because like, I think that's cool and he likes it and it's fun. And we have it like a cool activity that we do together. And in some ways, like that should be enough. You shouldn't have to also, you shouldn't have to be like, it's because he's going to be a professional hockey player or because he's going to get to college like that. It, you shouldn't have to say that, you know, like we should be able to, to, to make some of these choices and just say that the reason that we're organizing our life the way that we are is because that's what we want. And I think that's sometimes missed. I'm struck by, and yes, this is the whole point of your framework, and you alluded earlier around how in framing the question, you need to be very cognizant of the, the constraints and things that you have around you of even what's a possible choice. You know, you can't go to private school if you can't afford it, for example, or childcare, et cetera. And, you know, it's actually such a big constraint in so many places. I kind of feel like one of your, one of your books down the road needs to be about the public policy implications in terms of all the different places where there are constraints on families' decisions that, you know, ideally wouldn't be there. I'm curious. Yeah. Curious. Yeah. When I, that, book, that book's coming out. You're right. That is like next year, yeah, 2022. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, almost everything I talk about in the book or many of the things, there's, there's almost like a parallel discussion um, about, about sort of what would be a good policy. So give you a very concrete example, which is redshirting. So and somebody asked about this in the chat. So, you know, I talk in the in the book about the question of of redshirting, and and if for those of you who are not like deeply entrenched in kindergarten age promotion, um, the the issue here is that you know for kids who would be relatively young for for their grade, who say are a summer birthday when there's the September first cutoff for school, sometimes it is it has become increasingly common over time to hold the kids back for a year to keep them. Um, to keep them, you know, home and then, uh, and then to send them when they're older. And the idea there is that they will be like bigger and readier and whatever, like readier for, for school. And when you look at the, at the data, when you sort of dig into like the data on that, um, the kind of big reason to do that, the, the advantage of, of doing that um, is that we see kids who enter, who are sort of relatively very young for their grade, are more likely to be diagnosed with uh, learning disabilities, with ADHD in, in particular, um, sort of hyperactivity. And those diagnoses tend to tend to follow them. It's more of an issue for for boys and for for girls. Uh, and and because of the way those studies are run, it seems pretty clear that what's going on is not that those kids have 
more ADHD, but that it is because they are being compared to older peers and that it, you know, an almost, you know, a kid who's just turned five is really different in their ability to sit still to like an almost seven-year-old. And particularly because kindergarten has become more of like a thing where you sit still and do worksheets, whatever, in a lot of places that, that if a kid is too, is young, it's easy to be like, oh, the reason that they're acting out is that they, you know, have this issue as opposed to that they're young. So, from an individual decision maker standpoint, um, you know, I think that's that's informative in the sense that it says, you know, the kinds of things that might push you towards doing this rather than sort of doing the default are if you had a kid who was, you know, kind of a summer birthday who was less good than like not who you thought was sort of like not ready for the kind of physical like focus demands of, of kindergarten. So that's in the individual decision frame. But I think there's on top of that, there's a policy thing, which is like, it's crazy that we're making parents make this choice. We should just not have this choice. Like this shouldn't be a thing you can choose to do, except in very unusual circumstances. And the reason that it shouldn't be a choice, I think, uh, is that it is tremendously unequal. Like basically the people who have the resources to like have another year of childcare for their kid and not send them to like free school are tend to be rich people. They tend to be, you know, so then we're sort of exacerbating already existing inequities in sort of in, in the world uh, on top of which, I don't know why it should be the job of parents to decide when to send their, you know, when to send their kid on top of which this just makes, this pushes kindergarten even more into this kind of like space that probably isn't age appropriate for kids who are that age, which is like sitting down and sitting still and doing worksheets and like, that's not really good for, for kids. So there's all kinds of reasons we just shouldn't have this option. And I think that there's a, there's a parallel in a lot of these places that kind of it would be better if policy were organized differently, conditional on how policy is organized. There's a set of choices that, you know, parents may, may want to make, but actually on the policy side, we should be thinking about how to make it so they don't have that choice. Um, but that's on the book, right. on this, the next book or some that's other right. book, somebody else's yeah, book. Yeah. And there's, and there's, there's policy choices about kind of, you know, just distribution of resources and things like that. And, you know, I did have a note to myself too, on how a lot of, I mean, you wrote, the, you wrote the book kind of helpfully thinking about the individual family unit kind of making the most that it can out of the situation it's in. But a lot of these decisions do have this kind of collective action dimension to it, like the red shirt, an example of sort of it's, it's not only the age of your kid, it's the relative age of other kids. You know, when to give your kid a cell phone interplays with when all of their friends are starting to get cell phone. Same with a lot of the kind of competitive feelings that sometimes people get about you know, grades and extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, short of short of changing state or federal policy, is there a front of kind of coordinated activity with other families, you know, more involvement on PTAs and rotary clubs and stuff like that, that people should be thinking about how to get more civically involved for just coordinating with other families? Yeah, I mean, I I think that um you know, I mean this is people differ on this. I think there are a set of people who think whose view is basically more of the kind of collective approach, which is like, if we all like, I should do this because if we all did it, things would be, um, would be better. I tend to think for me of these things as sort of parallel, like there's a place for advocacy. There's a place for like trying to coordinate, trying to push policy in particular directions, trying to make progress there. And that maybe that, that like, it's not obvious we're going to be able to make a huge amount of progress with the sort of on the, I mean, in some cases you might, but like sort of moving redshirting policy by like coordinating with other people to not redshirt your kid this year. Like that's, 
I, I, I think I'm a little more skeptical about human nature. Like, I'm just not sure that that's that I think we see too many examples where that the kind of thing just would never work. And so I, I, I am more in the space of let me push on policy over here and, and, you know, make choices over here. But I also think for some people, there's a sense in which like part of what they, what they find important is, is these, these sort of like alignment with the value with other values. Right. And to say like, I, you know, it is important. Like my value is to support the public school system. And that is, you know, I'm going to send my kid to public school even if, you know, I am not as sure that that is like the, the optimal thing for, um, for them, because that's part of my values. And I think that's, that's kind of a different thing. That's, that is in some ways a, a collective, that's a, a contribution to the collective, but a recognition that it is because of your own preferences. Are there any family domains that you think it's wiser to not try to kind of strategically map it out or measure it and instead step back and for whatever reason, sort of theory is that you'll end up feeling better about that space if you don't try to kind of metric it out in this way? I think there are, there are many areas where I, I think it's, I wouldn't push on metrics or data or sort of say, but I think the, there are, there are fewer in which like, there are fewer big areas in which I think deliberateness is not of value. So I would sort of separate out like the kind of feel of like, I'm going to make this choice because of some like a data piece. And I think that there's like tons of, I mean, almost every, I think realistically almost every choice that we make that I make in my own household actually doesn't really reflect like trying to optimize something in terms of data. It reflects like what are the values and the sort of priorities that we have. Like the one exception is probably sleep where like really like a lot of our life is organized around a belief that data says that like kids need a lot of sleep. But most of the other stuff I do, I think I wouldn't be like, oh, I do that because of data, you know, because of data. But there are, there are fewer areas in which I would say it's not good to think, fewer major areas in which I would say it's not good to think intentionally about this, um, about this choice because I'm not sure like, I'm not sure what the alternative is. Like, I'm, you know, just like doing things in a haphazard. And some people say, you know, like basically, well, the way I want my family life to work is I want it to just be a lot of chaos and I don't ever want to know what's coming around the the other side. And like, I just, I don't care, you know, I and I think that like, Oh, like that's not how I feel about my life. And I, I think, but if that's what, if that's what you want to do, I think you could be intentional about that. You're like, okay, well, I intentionally want to just like, never know what's happening tomorrow. Like, okay. But that's, but that is an intent. That's a choice. That's an intentional choice. Right. Yeah. And I don't actually have anything in mind in asking that other than, so my, my substantive area is actually in d- decision-making, which is actually all about yeah. sort of structures of how to process information. And it is a space where it'll sometimes come up I've not really, I've not done it in the parenting setting, but for instance, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't question physician judgment. If you try to actually like open that box and analyze it too carefully, you somehow, you know, will disrupt the kind of wisdom that would otherwise organically emerge. And I don't know what it is other than sometimes an intuition that, you know, some things just shouldn't be scientifically analyzed. Not that I could personally make a whole lot of sense of that, but it sometimes can crop up in weird little, weird little places. Yeah. I mean, I think again, like it's sort of, yeah, some things you're just going to do like almost on, you know, almost on instinct, but I think these big, and I would differentiate between sort of like little things and big things. And I think the big things um, matter more. Yeah. Well, and in this case, I mean, I think one of the parts that would be really liberating about following your sort of structured approach, you hit on a little bit earlier is how some slow down and make a deliberate decision 
today can save you from having to revisit that decision over and over again in perhaps more stressful environments. And so in some sense, it's not actually, I know there's been some people who have kind of seen your book and wonder whether you're like putting more effort, Is it more, more work? work? Is it more, more work, work on parents? Yeah. Where I think actually it could lead to, to less decisions at the end of the road because you don't have to have that argument about whether there's going to be TV or who's like cooking on Wednesday right. night if you just kind of hashed it out. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a sort of, like it's it's moving it's moving the work i think like it and it, it is definitely there are pieces of this that say like sort of up, like i'm suggesting you do some work up front and and there you know but i think it will save i think it will save time or conflict later are there topics that almost just made the book that you had to cut not really i mean because i think that the you know, we're sort of diving down a a space where the data is, um, uh, where the data is not that, not always that great. So it's like, I think that the things I would have decided, I would have felt like I missed, it was like, wow, there's like really great data on this question, but like there's no. Why? I kind of broached this a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it on why there isn't just more research and evidence on a lot of these questions. It's kind of maddening given how important and influential it is. And, you know, scientists study all kinds of stuff. Like why don't, why don't we actually have more empirical work and more randomized experiments on a lot of these issues? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, one thing is it's hard to run a randomized it's hard to run a randomized experiment on people's on people's behaviors, um, you know, particularly when there are things people care a lot about. So let me give you an example. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about like how family meal is important and eating together as a family is important. And, and there's tons of correlational evidence. Like it's hard to find any parenting choice uh, where there's more like good stuff that goes on the left-hand side. And, and you know, but, but of course it's also like tremendous tremendously selected like the the sort of set of people who do this are just like totally different than than other than than those who do not so it's actually like a really hard causality it's a really hard causality space yes okay so there is a randomized control trial uh where they tried to evaluate this you say like okay we'd like to evaluate so they they basically encourage people to have a family meal and the thing that happened is nobody did it so you're relying on it's not a drug you know where you can basically be like you're going to take it or not take it this is like they they told people to have a family meal and nobody took a nobody had the family meal like there was no first stage and so then there was no second stage but like of course there was no second stage like there was no first like there is an effect there's like but it didn't change anything and i think that's part of it like some of these things um you know it's it's hard to generate evidence because it is hard to generate behavior change and the same is true in things like diet you'd say like well how you know how can we think about what's like the optimal diet for kids like the healthiest diet whatever it is really hard to get people to change their families their family's diet so we can you know we can sort of sort around the edges with rcts on some of these questions but um and you know there are some pieces where where it's better but it's just like i think it's i think the, the behavior change is challenging and the heterogeneity treatment effects always really hard in, yeah. in experiments i mean i guess yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess I'm still not fully satisfied with like our our research community on this because, like, yeah, randomized controlled experiments they're they're hard to pull off, but they can be pulled off. You know, I've, we've done them on policing issues, on on public health issues, things where like literally life and limb is at stake. Yeah. And so, even with something like meals, 
totally get your point about whether you can actually get the, the behavior change there. But, you know, my mind wants to go to thinking about how to solve that. Like, I don't know, let's, let's get a budget and just like deliver people the family meal so that it's not the cooking burden so that we can really help them get at the dinner table. So that's not the obstacle. And it just seems like there's a, like a lack of creative push sometimes to be doing more experiments. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair, that's a fair point. Right. Well, all, all of the researchers who are listening. To yes, this go space, do that. Please feel do that. Deliver people meals to, to go do some of these things. Here's here. All right. Here's there's a particular one. But one I was curious about is whether you came across anything in the domain of like toys. There's a lot of stuff out there about, you know, should you have natural toys, other stuff? Do you have too many, too little? Anything? Listen, here's what I would say about this, David. And I think this is this is an answer to many questions. If you are thinking about what is the right kind of toy for your kid, it's fine. Your kid's fine. It's the same when people are like, there's these two preschools. One of them has uh, all the teachers have master's degrees, but in the other one, only one of the teachers has a master's degree, but it's in early childhood education. And like, how should I think about that? So like, don't think about it. Go with the one that's closest to your house and is more convenient or that you like the backyard. Like, you know, and I think this, this kind of gets this whole point. Like a lot of these things, you know, we're, we're like, it's like, that's not important. Like there are big picture things that, you know, may be important. And we know that it's like in general, there are, are kids can be, there are differences in, in outcomes for kids, but questions like what is the right kind of wooden toy? No, don't think about that. <laughs> this might be motivated by my desire to just have fewer toys. Right. Sure. If you want to have, but that's the thing. If you want to have fewer toys, but she's like, you know what? I'm going to have fewer toys because I don't like having so many toys. I hurt my toe. That's a good reason. I stepped on a toy. That's it. I stepped on a Lego, throw the Legos, get the, put the Legos yeah, away. Yeah. That's it. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back like, to my, my that's because parenting. of my foot. Yeah. My that's, that's parenting what. syllabus that I'm going to create is going to have a new exactly. section. I'm on, so sorry. Lego stepping on. Well, so I've been so, as we've been chatting, I've been pulling some questions yeah. from the audience, but let me go explicitly to a few and give folks a explicit prompt that if you haven't tossed your question in yet, please do it. We've got a few more minutes left here. And here's one coming from Alice asking what you think about the data from books like Toddling the American Mind that said kids lacking independent free play without supervision is, is bad. I mean, I, so I, I actually like that book a lot. Um, I, I think that there's sort of two pieces of what they're saying. One is like kids need to play outside and have unsupervised, unsupervised play. I think the other piece is about um, sort of some kind of independence and sort of scaffolding independence as a, as a skill or as something that we, you know, we don't do as, as much of. And I think that, you know, I, I sort of spent some time in the, in the book on these kind of parenting philosophies. And in particular, thinking about the sort of like, kind of not to put too fine a point on it, but like the kind of helicopter versus free range chicken kind of thing where it's like, are you going to, you know, how much are you scaffolding your kids and how much are you sort of letting them go? And that has a physical component, but it also has a sort of like, like how much are you going to make them responsible for things and let them to live with the consequences of that? And I think when we look in, into the data on that, there there seems to be, there's probably some sort of happy like in everything else, some kind of like happy medium, where it's certainly the case that in many ways, more involved parenting uh, delivers better outcomes, you know, kids who are read to do better kind of stuff. But there, if there's also a sort of flip side of that, where, you know, kids who are like in college, who perceive their parents to be sort of overly involved are more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression and, and so on. And so I think that there's, there's clearly, a, you know, 
some kind of sense in which you you both do not want to like abandon your we want we want to be able to make sure that our kids know that we are like that there's their you know there's a support but simultaneously not send them off to college like having never like made an omelet or you know never like put a piece of bread in the toaster because eventually they like have to be an, an adult um and i think that's i think th- that's the thing i took away from the coddling of the american mind is the idea that like there's a there's a kind of amount of independence we want to um we want to deliver f- to to our kids and i think that is somewhat supported in the data and you know the 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 one thing i would say very practically to alice um is that there are um as a person also with a tremendously structured life is that you may need to look outside of your structured life for structures to deliver unstructured time um and so in particular i think this is what people like about camp about something like some kind of like out of house, like if it's an option, some kind of like sleep away kind of camp where kids basically their time is just inherently less. The structure is you're sending them somewhere on purpose to have less structured time uh, and, and to sort of figure things more out for themselves. Because I think it's not just that their time is structured. It's like when they're at school, every social interaction is or many social interactions are like also really scaffolded. And, you know, there's not a lot of just like do whatever and, you know, throw balls at each other as hard as you can until somebody cries, which was like my entire that was like my entire childhood it was like you just go to some parking lot and like everybody throws balls really hard at each other until somebody goes on crying and like that was it and then your mom was like ah i guess you're the person who get hit by the balls today all right yeah. and that very rarely happens to you nowadays no you don't see that much very i mean you know that's what twitter's for it it, right. it, it is <laughs> it is interesting how a lot of the things you talk about seem applicable to us as parents and adults which i guess would be expected as they're getting kind of older but a lot of your recommendations around getting enough sleep not yeah don't watch know, tv before iPad, bed like beforehand yeah. the benefits yeah. of some unstructured time like all of these things are places that as yeah. i was reading the book i was like yeah we should do more of that yeah. too we should do more of that too i know yeah, yeah i know i wait mean, i watch tv before i like this whole thing i was like at the end of the chapter about sleep is like the most important thing is don't watch screens before sleep <laughs> it's like that's the only time i watch tv <laughs> yeah right anyway and- do as i say as right. I do. And that is a place where the, to pick just one factoid that hopefully people will, will get to when they read the book, like the quantity of sleep that kids need is, a lot. is way more than your intuition. Yeah. Might yeah. Be and, and I think, so it's, you know, for elementary school kids it's something like probably nine to 11 hours typically, although, you know, kids kind of, there's a, there's a pretty big, I mean, that is itself a big range is even a bigger range, but I think for me, the most valuable piece of that, um, of that kind of analysis was actually like, thinking about how would you know if your kid was getting enough sleep? And I think the answer is basically, are they sleepy? Um, you know, are they like, seem, do they seem sleepy? And also, do they, do they oversleep on the weekend? So if you like let them sleep in, would they go like two extra hours? In which case, like they're not sleeping enough. You know, basically, if you are a well-rested person, like you should basically be getting up like at the same, like roughly the same time, even if you did not set um, did not set an alarm. And I think that's, and that feels like a sort of place where like pretty quick self-experimentation um, might, you know, might help. Well, we're about to be out of time. I don't know even if there's anything you were really hoping to no, this is great about that we haven't hit. No, this is great. I really enjoyed it. Yes, me too. And I'll put it up. If you haven't already gotten The Family Firm, you absolutely should. It's a great book. I'd also encourage you, like I said at the onset, go check us out at thepolicylab.com brown.edu maybe also check out the 30,000leagues.com podcast we're actually 
Emily was one of the, the first guests that I had where we talked about your prior book, Crib Sheet. So you yeah. can just plug in the earphones and listen to Emily and I chat for, for many more, hours. More podcasting. It's the best. That's right. All right. Well, All Emily, right. Thanks thank so you much, David. So much. Thanks, everybody. It's great right. to see you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you later. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thanks for taking a deep dive with 30,000 Leagues. This podcast was hosted by David Yoakum, director of the Policy Lab at Brown University and produced by Kelly Harris-Crawley and David Yoakum. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep safe, keep calm, and narwhal on. What's the, uh, what's the picture behind you? Oh, this is like, like, yeah, I don't know. That was Penelope. That's something from Finn. I'm trying to like, I like people, somebody told me the other day that my, my wall looks like I'm in a prison. So Mm -hmm. I tried to like clean my office and like put some stuff up that made it look like a little less prison like. Yeah. I got a lot of the same shit, which is why I put some stuff on the floor. Now people give me grief that it's not actually hung up. Mm. Just can't satisfy people.